Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plotlines. I'm your host, Connor. And before we start our episode today, please like, share, comment, and subscribe if you like the, what we're doing here on this channel. And please join our Discord to join our discussion. The link for that is down below. Now with me today is Caitlin Fasista uh, from Tea with Tolkien. She is a wonderful uh, Twitter personality as well as has a great podcast and uh, as well as her website is fantastic. All things Tolkien, there's uh, probably nobody better on the internet at the moment. So Aww. welcome, Caitlin. <laughs> Thank you. So it, it's really great to have you here. I, you know, really, uh, you're your part on the internet is just very a very great place to find everything Tolkien and um, thank you for all the work you do oh thanks oh happy to do it it yeah. uh, means a lot to me so it's fun to share Tolkien with the rest of the world um I think so I got into Tolkien it wasn't that long ago when I read uh, Lord of the Rings maybe three or four years ago and you were one of the first people I found sort of talking about it um, no way yeah that's crazy mm -hmm. and obviously i have this shirt that you made as well so yes um, that i'm wearing so thank I love you for that creating shirt. that um i think uh my mother got it for me as a present one year oh uh, that's a good yeah. mom mm -hmm. exactly um so we're here to talk about elves all things elves one of the most interesting parts of tolkien's legendarium given the fact that Elves don't exist, <laughs> or do they? Yeah, anymore, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I want to uh, sort of pick your brain about elves. So let's start with um, what do you think the role of elves is in Tolkien? I would say first and foremost, I think that they were meant like as a vehicle for Tolkien's invented languages because he started out wanting to create these languages. And then you can see him like, oh, well, I better build a story for this language. And okay, I made Elvish, so we need elves. Um, so I imagine that that's kind of how it, it ended up kind of coming out. But I also think they're really the main players in all of uh, the world's history because they're the ones who are living through most of it. And so it's easier for Tolkien to work with these grand stories spanning thousands of years when he has characters who also live um, who can live through that whole thing. Um, and I also think they're the ones making many of the world changing decisions and kind of determining the course of the history of the world. So they're really just like the ones in charge, at least for a lot of um, what we get from Tolkien. Yeah. I mean, they're really the first characters that are really like, I mean, they're human-esque insofar as they are, uh, you know, imperfect and, uh, you know, but but they also are mortal, and that uh, it's just interesting to me that he is able to make it so so, so relatable uh, of mm -hmm. characters, even though they're immortal. I mean, they do die, uh, or they can die, I guess. So, mm -hmm. how do you think he he did that? I I feel like um, he wanted them to be like you were saying, like they are. Um, set apart from humanity but at the same time they do have a lot of the same traits as humanity where they um they'll make mistakes they'll cause problems they actually cause a lot of problems in the <laughs> somerillion um but 
through their own journeys of life, I think that a lot of um, Tolkien's own philosophy is kind of revealed through their stories and um, the world is just shaped along as they're going. Yeah. Do you think Tolkien had to write the Silmarillion kind of in that, uh, I, I kind of think of it as biblical ask in so far as it's not as detailed or not as, um, it's not like a novel in the normal sense uh, because he's dealing with immortal beings that their uh, life stretches so long? I feel like that's probably part of it. Um, I feel like he had to take such a, I don't know what you'd call it, just like a, he looks at everything in, in such a cosmic scale, at least a, for most of the Silmarillion, um, because everything that's happening is so big. And when you get to the Lord of the Rings, you get to zoom in a lot closer and you get to meet characters and, and know them in a different sense. But with the Silmarillion, it's like the whole world is being made and then it's being changed and there's giant battles and wars happening. So he does kind of have to zoom out in order to really capture what's going on. He does, though, make the character characters in the Silmarillion very uh, likable, even yeah. when they're even when you're sort of looking at them from sort of this cosmic, uh, this cosmic um, area, I guess, or this. Cosmic yeah, because because he does, he'll he'll stay far out, and but then he'll you can see him like zooming right in uh, when something important is happening, uh, and he wants to describe it in detail, and you're like suddenly weeping out of nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that is kind of the the best description of what the Silmarillion is. I feel like people have a hard time sometimes getting into it because they they feel like it's so different from Lord of the Rings. But it you have such beautiful moments within it, just like Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they come as more of a surprise too because you weren't expecting them a lot of the times. And like you're just like, you know, he'll just drop the most beautiful sentence you've ever read out of nowhere and you're like amazed <laughs> yeah uh do you think it's significant that they're the firstborn of of Eru Iluvatar the um the god of the universe I think it makes sense when you think of the way that he um he kind of wanted this own mythology to be a part of our own mythology and so if you think about it the firstborn the elves and they aren't a part of our world anymore um and now like the elves have their time and then they start fading out and then then it's the time of men and then we're kind of still in the time of men um and so in that sense like that you can see that he wanted it to be somewhat of a mythology for our own world it makes sense but it also makes sense because uh, I feel like they're the ones who have been given more responsibilities, I guess, because of their greater lifespan and the fact that their lives are kind of tied to the earth itself. Whereas with men, you know, they die and, and it doesn't really go into any detail with what happens after their death. But for elves, they are, they have a lot more responsibility and powers and um, they kind of do operate as like a firstborn child in that sense. They also can, yeah, they're kind of holding the ship together in, yeah. in some way. Even They're supposed when, to be. <laughs> well, yes, they, they, <laughs> they, uh, they're, um, they're a disappointment, I would say, uh, a number of times. But they hold, yeah. they hold the ship together in some ways. And even as 
you get into the age of men or near the age of men, they're still holding holding everything together. Um, mm-hmm. But but they do act sort of as mentors uh, to man. Yeah, I almost imagine their intended role was to be like shepherds of men, um, but they, in most cases, ended up failing. And I think a lot of that, uh, we were, so our, our Discord read the Silmarillion this summer, and a lot of our discussion came back to the question of whether or not it was right for the Valar to summon the elves to Valinor when they did, because in in a sense, I see that as them pulling the elves away from where they were meant to be and kind of what they were meant to be doing, because uh, I kind of imagine like what would have happened if they would have stayed. And then when the men came, if they would have been like helpers to them and teachers to them and instead they're like off having wars of their own so I kind of wonder how the fate of men would have been different if the elves would have just stayed put which is kind of the fault of the Valar so it's it's like a big complex Mm -hmm. thing to think about but I, I don't know I've been thinking about that a lot word from our affiliate Bishop Sheen rosaries you've probably worn through the chain of your cheap plastic rosary other rosaries simply can't stand up to the wear and tear of everyday life Bishop Sheen rosaries are made of solid metal beads and paracord to withstand any condition and are backed with a lifetime warranty. Upgrade your rosary to a Bishop Sheen rosary made to fit your lifestyle or buy one for a friend. Each rosary sold supplies two weeks of food for a school kid in Uganda. Use the exclusive link down below to help support our efforts here at Plotlines. The link will take you to sheenrosaries.com. Be sure to use the code PLOTLINES10. Well, do you think they would have had sort of the knowledge they would have needed to pass on if they hadn't um, been brought to the Valar? Yeah, I don't know. It's possible, like, if the Valar could have, like, come to them and maybe taught them there instead of... Because I feel like the Valar bringing them to Valinor right off the bat was like they were trying to take them and hide them away from all the dangers which as a parent like (laughs) I can totally relate to that but at the same time like you have to let people grow up and you have to let your kids learn how life can be and you know learn lessons along the way and grow up and so I imagine if the elves would have had a different opportunity because I think they were supposed to go to Valinor at some point but I kind of wonder if they went too soon do you think that but this is had, just all in my head? Yeah, I, this isn't like supported by anything. I don't think. No, I uh, I like the sort of um, the I don't know. I like the idea. I also think. It, it, do you think it, it it was caused more by the marring by done by um, Morgoth? Yeah, I think. I mean, everything he did definitely caused problems and messed things up. So if he could have just not done that, things would have been wonderful. Um, but I don't think he was maybe the only one to blame for kind of the, the way things turned out, especially with Feanor and, uh, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also think the Valar are kind of, or, or so the elves are like ha- halfway in between men and the Valar. They're sort of, they, they've got, sort of traits of both yeah in some ways um do you think or would you say that 
uh, elves are greater than men? Say greater, like, like greater in the mind of a Luvatar. I wouldn't imagine that he would hold one or the other above each other. But I do feel like, like I said before, like they've been given different gifts and the gifts of the Eldar kind of come with more responsibility just because of their prolonged lifespan and their, um, I don't know, they, I think they've just been given more. So the whole Spider-Man quote, you know, with great power yeah. comes great That's responsibility great. kind of kind of thing. So I wouldn't say they're greater, like, like I wouldn't want them looking down on men, even though they kind mm-hmm. of end up doing that anyways. But I don't know if that's quite right for them to do that. Yeah. So, and would you explain where the rivalry comes from with their, uh, between the elves and the dwarves? Yeah. So I think that really comes down to the creation of the dwarves because uh, the children of Luvatar are elves and men. And then you have Aule, one of the Valar, he kind of gets impatient waiting for the elves to awaken. And so he goes off and creates a people of his own and he creates the dwarves. But um, as he's not a Luvatar himself, he doesn't have the ability to create life itself like a Luvatar does. And so what he creates are kind of like, um, I imagine like video game characters, you know, when you're playing your video game, the character just stops <laughs> moving. Um, and so, Luvatar kind of shows him like what have you done because now this these creatures are con- completely reliant on you um, but then Luvatar and his kindness he does end up giving them like a fullness of life and he adopts them as children of Luvatar but I think there's kind of always this tension because they weren't like a part of the original plan and um, so there, it's a little bit weird for the elves and men maybe um, just because there's something so different and then that the dwarves did have to kind of wait a while longer because um, Oluvatar said that he needed like his original children to wake up first. So I feel like that's kind of at the root of everything, but then they kind of just always have a, a strained relationship. They, they can profit off of each other and kind of get along when they need to, like a business working relationship, but then they don't really ever fully trust each other that much. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you think it has to do with sort of Aule's sort of um, his interests clashing so much with all the other um, all the other Valar who taught uh, the elves? Maybe. And I think that um, also the way that Aule acted in becoming impatient and wanting something of his own and kind of going off into his own to create something is very similar to the way that Melkor did in the Aina And so there's really a lot of similarities in those two actions. But then with Aule, we have like a really humble repentance. And, you know, he when, when, when Melkor is confronted, he just gets more mad and more set in his ways. But then when Aule is like realizing what he's done, he's immediately, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, I'll, I'll destroy this. Um, I, I want to repent. And so uh, that's the difference between the two of them, but they still kind of started out very similarly in a way. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, Melkor is much more powerful than Aule. Do you think mm-hmm. sort of that, um, that power, that ability went to his head, which it explains sort of the difference of a response between the two Valar? It seems like it because he was definitely um, more prideful because he knew 
that he, he kind of knows he's better than everyone else. Um, and he is impatient and he thinks he knows better than Iluvatar. And that's why he's, even before the music, he's going out into the void, trying to find something that, that isn't ready yet. And it's, he's not able to find it because it's not part of the plan. And so he's um, just becoming so impatient and prideful and he wants it now and he wants it how he wants it. Um, so that just doesn't really end very well for him. He's like the girl from uh, um, Willy Wonka. Yes, uh, he's like, Daddy, I want it now. <laughs> yes, that is uh, that is Malcor. Um, <laughs> goofy. Can you imagine that? Um, yeah, I can totally see him. Like, Melkor is like the kind of Valar who, like, throws tantrums and uh, is just, like, screaming and bugging everyone else and, and they're in the playground and he's just knocking their blocks over and... Exactly. But his blocks, the blocks are the world and he's yeah, just, they're like just, mountains. Yeah, but he's destroying mountains instead of uh, blocks. Um, but yeah, that, that comes like sort of another uh, it's sort of related to the with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, you know, he has the greatest of the powers of mm -hmm. all because he has is it right he has the powers of all the Valar. I don't, uh, I, I'd have to double check that. I've not heard that before, but if, um, I feel like they all had a part to play in the song. So it's maybe like he, he could have had the leading part in the song. I'm not exactly sure on that. Or maybe it was the sort of, a, he has like part of every, he, he has a little bit of everyone's power, sort of, so to speak. Like, yeah, that and, sounds. Yeah. I can't remember. I'm maybe I'm wrong about this, but, uh no, I feel like once you get into, um, like, I feel like I know Silmarillion pretty well, but then once you get into, like, Unfinished Tales and, like, the history of Middle-earth, it's where things get a little fuzzier for me. Yeah. I don't, actually, I don't think I've read uh, either of those, actually. So Sometimes I think it's better if you haven't, because then you just have, like, one canon to stick to. And once <laughs> you start reading all of his drafts and changes, and then you're just like, what's going on here? Like, yeah. I don't know. I've read the three books that uh, Christopher, the three, like, um, what is it? The Children of Her and the um, Baron and Luthien and what's the, uh, the Fall of Gondolin. Mm -hmm. um, so I've read those. but So in, in that way, I'm, I can get a some things a little confused because yeah. there, there's multiple, multiple different versions of each story. I know it kind of can cause confusion as you're going. I, I definitely lose track of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so, you know, there's there these different types of elves, too. So elves are not sort of this one sort of um, culture or one sort of um, a group of in, um, peoples because they separated um, multiple times and because they were even just different when they are different from each other when they were created uh so will you explain um some of the differences uh or the different types of um elves sure so so like we were talking about before um all the elves awakened together but then when the valar summoned them to come to valinor a lot of them refused the journey so they just stayed some of them accepted but then got kind of lost along the way and then some of them made it all the way to valinor then some of them stayed in valinor some of them went back to Middle-earth. 
And so you have this, this massive splintering of elves. And as they go, you know, they're, they're growing in their own communities and they're finding different things they like. So you've got, you know, certain elves who love building ships. You've got other elves who live in the woods. Um, other elves who kind of, the, like the Noldor, they're kind of like the main group of elves that we deal with in the Silmarillion. And they are really into like craftsmanship and building because they are kind of favored by Aule, who is um, the craftsman of the Valar. And so it kind of is just everyone splintering off into different, into different groups. And um, then over thousands of years, you can imagine how they would adapt and grow. And it, this would lead into very distinct groups of elves who all have different talents and strengths and personalities and everything. So it's kind of just like everyone's going everywhere. Yeah, no, uh, uh, and uh, creating conflict. Uh, yes, they're all getting into battles and killing each other, and and uh, it's not going so well for them. Yeah, no, it, it's sort of this. The dark elves are kind of the strangest part to me. Is sort of you don't really get much of them, and um, I'm trying to think. There's one. Is there only one dark elf that really gets uh, attention? Or I the only one I can think of is Aeol. Yeah. And, and he, uh he's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's the thing about I feel like with the the elves like that, they um they kind of live a more hidden life. And so they don't come into the great tales as much. So we don't really get too much about them. Because I was thinking just, you know, how you were thinking of, you know whether or not they should have gone uh so early uh it's just interesting to look at them to see but we don't really get to look at the dark elves too much and yeah. the dark elves i mean they're not in they, there's nothing inherently bad about them like there is in like norse mythology or anything like that yeah but, i think they're just called the dark elves because they dwell in the dark yeah and they haven't seen the light yeah Though the gray elves are kind of a mix of the two. Yeah, and, and I feel like with all of that, it can get really confusing too. Like I, I usually have a chart in front of me whenever <laughs> we're looking at, yeah, like especially when you get to the sundering of the elves in the Silmarillion, you're like, oh, who's going where and what are they called? You've got the Calaquendi and the Moriquendi and like, like what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's even groups within the, within those two, you know, there's, yeah. Uh, um, the gray elves, I think, are the maybe, but do you think they're kind of what would have been ideal, sort of, you know, because they seem to live in harmony and lived well in Middle Earth with sort of, um, with the, well, with a Maiar living amongst them with, um, mm -hmm. what was the Thingle? With Thingle and Melian, right? Melian, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I yeah, I feel like they, do seem to be doing, I mean, in general, they're kind of holding their ground and keeping Middle Earth safe, at least in their own realms. So it's possible that that could have been what the other elves were supposed to have been doing. But I guess I couldn't say what Tolkien was thinking. Yeah, no, no. It's just interesting because because um, for whatever reason, when I was when you were talking about them not going to Middle or going to the um, going to Valinor. Uh, I didn't think about the gray elves are kind of somewhat of a mixed bag. You know, you, you have Thingol who had gone and seen the trees 
but then didn't come back and he, but he is staying with um you know the she he marries um a lesser um what would they, what are they called the lesser there she's a Maiar. Um, yeah they're the lesser kind of like the valar but to a lesser degree is there a name for the two the valar and the Maiar, or is that... um yeah they're all called the ainur okay. and then the the ones who chose to enter into the earth are called the Valar and the Meyer. Okay. So the so, ones who are still like up in heaven are, are still called Ainur. Okay. So kind of lesser Ainur. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah. So and she sort of embodies the light of the trees, and he's basically mesmerized by that. Um, which that meeting is very interesting. What do you think about uh Ningle and Melian meeting? I think it's kind of funny because it- Tolkien writes like when they meet they they're kind of just like frozen in an enchantment for like I forget how long exactly but it's like a couple hundred years maybe (laughs) maybe it's like 200 years um so I think that's funny and I also like how it it kind of mirrors the story of Baron and Luthien which mirrors the story of Tolkien and his own wife where they they meet and there's just this enchantment and you're kind of just like frozen in time because it's so wonderful yeah. Um, and it, I also love about that story, though, the way that all of um, Thingol, his all of his people are out searching for him and they can't find him. And then they're unwilling to leave Middle Earth because they can't find him. And kind of the result of that is them staying there and, and kind of everything that goes with that. So it's such an interesting story. And I love the way that it kind of takes the the way that the story was going. And then it's like a sudden turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it seems very fairy tale esque too. So yeah, of, uh, like it, it feels very much kind of um, I don't know, Sleeping Beauty or something like that. Yeah, it's very um, enchanting. Yeah, and that sort of you said it, it comes back like over and over. The same a, a similar sort of event happens to uh, with Baron and Luthien and um, and Aragorn and Arwen also have. Um, something of a similar encounter but this sort of this I don't know it's the fact that his people won't leave without him uh, Mm -hmm. is a curious thing because that must there's so much I mean he was the king of that group what what group was that uh the the, um, it's the the seafaring people the Teleri the Teleri yeah and is it his his brother takes the reins? Yeah, because uh, because yeah. his name was originally Elway, and then Olway becomes the king, and takes them over eventually. But still, even after that, some people still don't want to go. So then, um, there's a whole group of them that remain behind. Yeah, do you think uh, do you think that had any negative effects? Uh, the splitting of the Teleri. I don't know. I mean, I would imagine that it would have been best for all of them to stay together. But I also think, I don't know, it seemed like a lot of good came from him staying, especially because we got Baron and Luthien after that. Um, and they kind of also changed the course of the whole world. So it, um, I don't know what, it, if a, if the role of Providence came into that at all or or what, but it, I mean, in general, it seems like it was it ended up being pretty good. Yeah. So uh, 
Who are your favorite elves from the Silmarillion? This is such a hard question. Um, I was thinking about this this morning, and I would think it would have to either be Fingolfin or Finrod, and I don't know if I could choose between to the two of them. Okay. So um, yeah. do you want to give uh, just a quick um, uh, summary of the two of them? Sure. So Fingolfin, he is the half-brother of Feanor. So after Feanor's mother died, um, his dad remarries, and then he has two sons. Fingolfin is one of them and they never get along because Feanor is kind of mad that his dad got remarried and there's just all this tension. Um, and eventually, um, you know, fast forward <laughs> quite some time, um, Fingolfin is the first high king of the Noldor in Beleriand and he has a lot happen in his story, but the way that his story ends is this duel with Morgoth and it's just like the most epic, um, fight battle scene in the whole story I would say um the like if you look up illustrations of this like you know Morgoth is standing like towering over him and um <laughs> this his bravery and his valor is just like it gives you chills reading it it's such an incredible story valor valor yeah <laughs> yeah um, um, and then, yeah, and then Finrod is the brother of Galadriel, um, and I think he has a really cool relationship with the dwarves, which a lot of elves, it's like almost like a lot of elves just don't get it with the dwarves, but he gets it, and so he's able to make a lot of progress with them and um, form a lot of strong relationships, um, and then he also has a really strong relationship with men, too, because of um, his whole storyline with Baron and Luthien and his ultimate death saving Baron, um, which is crazy when you think about the way that men are looked down upon by the elves, that an elf would sacrifice his own life uh, for Baron is really, really cool and, and different um, when compared to a lot of the other elves. So he also has just like a super cool story too. Yeah. Fingolfin, doesn't Fingolfin get like draw blood on Morgoth? Isn't that uh yeah, I think it what it was is he I'm mixing I might be mixing this up. He either gets his face scratched or stabs him in the foot. I thought he stabbed him in the foot. Yeah, okay. I'm not the face scratching must be something else. Um who, who scratched his face? I don't maybe actually it's remember. Sauron that. Later. I can't remember. I sometimes I get those two mixed up, but there's a there's a face that's scratched at some point in some battle. But yeah, I think it's uh I think it's Fingolfin. He stabs him in the foot. And so after that, uh Morgoth walks around like with a limp kind of and and you know he's he's real embarrassed by it. <laughs> oh yeah, like so like uh Morgoth's so tall. That's kind of why I was like why I'm thinking like Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I don't know how he would have Maybe it's the eagles because after he dies, oh. uh, the eagles come and rescue Fingolfin's body and maybe it's them that scratch his face. I don't recall. That sounds like it makes sense, but I also don't remember mm -hmm. that. So it's, uh... It might be Sauron who gets his face scratched. <laughs> it's hard to keep these guys all together. But well, Sauron also just loses his face, you know, his <laughs> or his ability to look um Yeah, after Numenor. Beautiful. Uh, yes but yeah and then uh finrod finrod is definitely the communicator of the bunch mm -hmm. it, it's um but he also i feel like the reason he's willing to sacrifice himself is because he left behind his wife if i'm not mistaken in i don't um, remember if they were married or not but they were he was like in love with married. her okay maybe so i thought they were married i don't know i thought because i thought that's why he won't take like he's unwilling to 
um take a wife in Valerian is because yeah. he left her behind. Uh I don't remember why. I, I can't I think she just didn't want to come okay. to Middle Earth. Which she like right. honestly she knows what's up. Yeah. But like, you know, he gets he's sort of part of the reason he, I think it's easier for him to sacrifice himself is because he kind of knows he's going back there. Yeah, and I think also he knows that um, Baron's quest is tied to the oath of Fanor, and so uh, for Baron to, for him to help Baron get the Silmarils and and in any way possible, I guess is is probably kind of a part of the oath that he's tied to. Yeah, there was no possibility of. Um, Fanor's kids to ever actually get the Silmarillions, right? Or did they, um, like, was it always a futile um, endeavor? I Well, they get, they do get two of them in the end. But don't they, like, uh, fall, don't they fall into the earth or something? Yeah, like, it, once they, ha- I mean, once they have them, it's so torturous to them that they just, one of them casts it into the sea, and then one of them casts it into um, the earth. So one of them disappears completely, like just like vanishes, right? Yeah, I get those two mixed up. It's two of the, um, I think it's Mithras and Maglor. Um, One of them throws it into the sea and then he just kind of wanders around the beaches afterwards lamenting forever. And then um, the other one like casts himself into like a fiery chasm with the Silmaril just because now that they finally have it, like it's so torturous to them because the Silmarils are hallowed and like anyone who's kind of unworthy of, of them or, or doesn't have the, the best intentions can't hold them without it hurting them a lot. Yeah. Tolkien loves fiery chasms. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he loves using fiery chasms. Um, but yeah, so, but which of the sort of great tales are your favorite? Oh, Probably Baron and Luthien, I guess, if we're if we're coming down to those. However, I was reading, what was it? We were just reading The Fall of Gondolin was also really intense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's hard because they're all so great. The Children of Hurin's just so depressing. I love it though, because it is, it feels like a Greek tragedy where a lot of other <laughs> yes. stories feel more more like fairy tales because they kind of have happy endings with the children of who and it's just like one thing after another and you leave <laughs> you get to the end of that story and you're just like i need to just put this book down and <laughs> take a nap like it's just depressing have you ever listened to it um done by chris the christopher christopher lee audiobook no i haven't i i just have the the um this the box set of the books but i haven't listened to the audio Gotcha. It's even more uh, like uh, sort of epic and dramatic with Christopher Lee. I'm sure Uh, he's got such a strong voice. Like he would be incredible. It's so sad that he died before he could do the the fall of Gondolin. Because I I would love to listen to the fall of Gondolin and his voice. That would have been incredible. Like the it's I mean, fall of Gondolin is just the most epic battle that I mean. It's like Tolkien was literally like thinking. It's kind of interesting because he thinks so much like, mo- like a modern, cho- like a modern like kid using like um all his all the toys in the 
toy yeah. box. He's and like, just, let's bring it all together. Yeah, exactly. He like, this is, I mean, that's how like, even like the Marvel movies uh, think of it. Like that's, that's how they think. Like, but Tolkien doesn't strike me. It's so interesting. Like his like personality doesn't strike me in that same way. Uh, but yeah. he like, but his fiction kind of fe- feels like that sometimes. Well, I feel like the whole Silmarillion, he's like, now, like, and let me introduce you to this piece and this piece and this piece. And that's like the whole thing up until like Baron and Luthien. And then you see it starting to come together. And then mm-hmm. after that, it just starts like snowballing. And, and you're like, oh, I remember this guy from this chapter. Now he's here <laughs> and it all makes sense. And like everything's coming together at like super speed. And it just like hits you like crazy and and you're just like overwhelmed and and it's but it's such an incredible story then you see it all coming together and you have like Arendil and then um like I don't know that's the thing about Tolkien is you can see how everything is a part of the same great tale like the Silmarils come from the light of the trees and even in the Lord of the Rings we have the file of Galadriel which which has the light of Arendil inside of it which also is from a silmaril which is also from the trees like it's just crazy i've always gotten confused where did that actually come from i don't is it really explained how that exists the file of galadriel yeah i think what it is is she has the mirror of galadriel and uh the light is reflected in the mirror in the waters of it and I believe she like scooped some of the water and puts it in the glass. I am ninety okay. percent sure. Okay, because I thought it like I was like, because it doesn't really seem to have that much to do with Arendil. Yeah, and it's not like they have the actual star. It's like there's yeah. the light from the star. Yeah. Okay. So the is the mirror. So is the mirror basically the light from? It mirrors the light from the star. I think so. Okay. That uh, that was always confusing to me. Does he not really describe that, or am I just? I feel like he doesn't go too far into it in the Lord of the Rings because um, it was written before he even had the Silmarillion really fully together. But if you would check like Tolkien Gateway, I bet it would it would have some kind of sources that it's probably all in unfinished tales. (laughs) (laughs) So okay, so Elvish magic is kind is. A really this interesting thing i mean the hobbits call it magic and then uh you know sort of how how where does that come from what is that sort of the basis for it i feel like elvish magic is really just a cooperation with nature the way that um like the elves have special gifts and the way that they use it is in harmony with nature and you can see that contrasted in the way that the enemy kind of tries to contort nature and manipulate it to his own end. So you have enchantment over here, which is just like, this is the way that it was supposed to be. And this is the way that it's when it's like properly ordered and properly used, I guess. It's and the then, power of natural law. Yeah. And it's just like <laughs> the elves have kind of like special gifts and and this is the way that it was meant to be used. And that's the way they use it. And then if they kind of try and deviate from that, that's when things go wrong. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, what's your, of the, of the different elves, like of the different cultures of the elves, what's your 
um, which of them are your favorites? And like, um, and then you can maybe uh, describe that a little bit. I think the the culture of the Noldor is probably the coolest to me um, because I, I'm a more creative person and I really enjoy making things and um, crafting things. And so I, I guess I've always been more drawn to them, which I guess could be a red flag. Um, uh, but <laughs> they, I don't know, I just feel like they have the gift of creation, of sub-creation um, and I feel like I really just love creating things, putting them together like that. And so they've always been something that I've been more drawn to. I've not really ever been interested in the Teleri, like with the, like, I'm not that into the sea. Like it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't call to me in the same way that it maybe does to others. Um, and then the other groups of elves, I've just never really, I don't know, given them a second thought, I guess. It's really all been the Noldor or nothing to me. Yeah. I mean, they are really like Tolkien's uh, children so far as sub-creation yeah. goes. Yeah. Um, They're definitely and, like the favored elves. Yeah. And the gray elves don't really do as much of that. Yeah. Because um, th they're sort of, they're sort of the nature elves, right? Mm -hmm. Or. Um, I feel like, yeah. And they're more, their, their works are more subtle, I would say, and more yeah. like quiet, I guess, where the Noldor would be like very clamorous and and loud and and kind of like fiery yeah no that makes a lot of sense um so is morgoth specifically the like the enemy of the elves more so than so i would say yeah i mean morgoth is definitely like like if you were to look at it in it's not a biblical allegory, but if you were to look at it as so, Morgoth would be Satan and Sauron would be like the number one demon. So Morgoth is like much more the enemy than Sauron. Sauron is just like a lieutenant of Morgoth. But um, in, Sa in Morgoth's absence, uh, after he's cast into the void, I would say that Sauron is like the number one enemy. But I also don't think it's like that he's just the enemy of the elves. He's the enemy of all the children of Iluvatar. But I do think Morgoth targets the elves um, first and foremost because they have the most power and the most potential if corrupted because he's going to go for whoever could serve him the most. Like, it's kind of like the one ring. Um, if Gandalf were to take it, it would be so much worse than if Frodo takes it yeah. because Frodo on his own just doesn't really have the capacity to, to do as much harm as Gandalf would yeah um so yeah okay and then what what would you I guess what is the void they don't really, don't, they yeah, don't really it go into that at all it's it's just like he's it's like Morgoth is cast into the outer darkness where he will never be able to escape allegedly um but it doesn't really describe it too much. It's just like something that's outside of the world um, and is somehow impossible to escape. Yeah, it's just interesting that it's not done earlier or anything like that. Yeah, like that's what they, they, I'm like. You've had this void the whole time and you didn't put him in it like right away. Him, and you had him in prison for a really long time. And then they let him out. Like, OK, yeah, that's another uh, example of the Valar not being perfect either, because I love how Tolkien writes that Monway was without 
evil. And so he couldn't understand evil and he couldn't understand how Morgoth, I think he was still called Melkor at the time, um, could be so evil. And so he was kind of naive in that sense that he just didn't even, like it didn't compute in his brain, like that, that he wouldn't actually be repentant. And so that's why he's like, well, he says he's sorry. Let's let him out. Yeah, that innocence that like, yeah. uh, they they sort of personify innocence, um, though, or I guess Manway sort of personifies innocence in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the elves sort of all have that. It's interesting that even like um, the fall of uh, who made the rings, uh, who was the elf? Celebrimbor. Yeah, Celebrimbor. Like his people still fell victim to this in this um this innocence of not not seeing uh sauron for what he really was um and it's it's interesting because even though they had such a long history of dealing with um you know as the noldor dealing with morgoth and his um his doings it's so interesting that they still fall victim to sauron i also think it was probably in his pride that he he wanted to learn how to become you know the greatest craftsman and to make you know the greatest kind of uh things and make these rings and so he was like tempted to kind of take help from wherever he could get it and when you want something so bad and then you suddenly have a guy showing up telling you he can give it to you um i imagine like with all of his pride and being a a descendant of feanor it it probably made it very difficult for him to think uh, rationally uh, and to, you know, to put two and two together. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So who is um, Feanor sort of the greatest of all the elves or who would you say is the greatest of all the elves? Yeah, uh, I think Tolkien calls him. He at least could have been the greatest of all the elves. Like he had that potential. Um, but unfortunately he like through his own choices, he, he kind of diminished his own self by, uh, falling into evil. But I think that Feanor probably could have been the greatest of all elves. And I think Tolkien says something about when he, when he dies, like, you know, and, and then perished the greatest of all the Noldor, the, you know, the most powerful and wisest or maybe not wise, strongest, smartest. Um, so yeah, he definitely could have been. Yeah. Sad. Is, yeah. Very sad. Uh the the one group of elves we haven't really talked about are the ones that stayed. Mm-hmm. Um who's the head who's the king of the um the Vanyar? Yeah, the Vanyar. I don't know. They're kind of a group that I don't really think about that much because of the fact that they aren't really in the in the story that much. Um I think it was Ingwe. He was the leader of the Vanyar um, and they were the ones to come to Valinor first, but, and then stayed. So they're probably the smartest of all of them because they <laughs> kind of just stayed out of it. Um, but they're, they're the ones that we don't really get too much about just because most of the story is set in middle earth. It was, um, Fainor's, was Fainor's mother a, uh, Vanyar? Or is that somebody else? Or isn't there a wife that was a Vanyar or a mother that was? 
Yeah, that sounds right. I think Muriel was one of the Noldor, but I remember there, I think there are a couple of times where, um, the, like one group of elves will be like, even though you're a different group of elves, you can still hang out with us because of your mother was a part of our group. But I, I, I feel like that might happen a couple of times, but I don't remember. Is it, did Finrod maybe marry one? Because, or not Finrod, who, who's, um, who's Finrod's mother, actually? So Finrod's um, mother. Let me look this up. I feel like the, I feel like whoever... Because the blonde hair, I thought the blonde hair was from the Vanyar, if I'm not mistaken. Arwen was Finrod's mother. And she was the daughter of Olway. Oh, never mind. So she was a... So she was a Teleri. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. It's, For some reason, I associate there's blonde. There's so much. For some reason, I associate blonde with uh, the Vanyar. I don't know why. Yeah, I think it's just because I, I do the same thing, and I think it's because they stay um, in the light in the light of of the Valar. I guess they they seem like a a more golden people because they they don't go into the the darkness that comes with Middle Earth. But I I, I mean, Galadriel was also uh, like had golden hair. Yeah, that's why. So that's why I was like, um, that's why I thought, oh, because Finrod's, because they have the same mother, right? Galadriel and Finrod are yeah. brother and sister. So that's why I was like thinking, like, okay, they must have a uh, Van. Yeah, there's got to be uh, someone in there with the golden hair. I, I swear there's a Vanyar mother. So somebody's married to a Vanyar. I'm going to have to like look this up afterwards. It's going <laughs> to drive me crazy. <laughs> but uh, maybe I'm making this up. Maybe I'm just. Uh, um, just thinking too much about that's it. That's the but, thing with Tolkien with the elves. You're like, it's it's almost impossible to keep everyone straight. Yeah, that's I mean, I'm amazed that he kept them straight. Actually, wait, yeah. he, didn't he mess them up a few times? Isn't isn't there like a family tree that somebody's uh on one one version is on is the son of somebody and yeah, like, I know with Gil Gallad, he said that um Gilgalad had a certain father and then he changed it to some somewhere else. Um, and so everyone kind of like jokes about like who's Gilgalad's dad, like, you know, <laughs> because he, like he was kind of changed. I think he changed his mind as he went. He did that with a lot of the family trees, like shuffling people around. And um, I guess all we have to do is like, usually what I'm like, oh, well, if it's in the Silmarillion, that's what I'm sticking with. But, but then you have, everything else he's written where he's maybe changed it later on in his life. And then you would argue that that's more correct, but it's, it's a lot. Sometimes I'm amazed the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings was even published because yeah. I'm, I'm amazed. He wasn't like moving around all the hobbits uh, in different family trees. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm amazed he was able to come to a decision on uh, that sort of thing. Cause he does just, he loves family trees. Yeah. Uh, in sort of, in everything everyone has a long long family tree i imagine he was very frustrated after after the books were actually published because that meant he couldn't go back and change them without without uh changing everything did tolkien have his own headcanon that's the real he question probably yeah i mean 
Probably, yeah. He was like changing who Bilbo and who Frodo are descendants of. Uh, yeah. In his mind. Uh, I feel years like he was. After. Yeah, like he was. I mean, he was always just like, you know, like moving things around, like just like tiny bits and and um, changing things in his mind. But then once something was actually published, I guess there wasn't too much he could do to change it. Yeah, it's hard being a perfectionist. I mean, that's really yeah. what he was. Uh, I, it's funny, you know, his friend C.S. Lewis just kind of wrote it and published it and was like, yep, I'm done with it. And Tolkien was like, no, I must make it perfect. That's how I am with everything I do. And then like my husband will just be like, like, I feel like my husband's more of the C.S. Lewis and I'm like the Tolkien, like I have to make everything perfect. I can't, you know, it's not done until it's just so. And then, you know, my husband's over there, like getting everything done because he'll just do it, do it once. And then it's done. Yeah. So it, it sounds nice to have your brain let you relax. Must be nice. The Noldor, uh, uh, the Noldor brain versus. Yeah. Uh, is there, do you think there's a elf uh, a version um, yeah, maybe the Teleri brain, because they seem to be pretty efficient. They, you know, they make their stuff and then it's great and it's just there. It's just done. But the Nolder are always just like, I got to tweak it and change it and make it better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you said Finrod and uh, Fingolfin were your favorite elves. Um, hmm. it, it's just very interesting sort of. Do we? I don't feel like we get a lot of Fingolfin's like personality, do we? I don't think a lot of it, but I feel like um, you can kind of see it through his actions, especially in his final battle with Morgoth. It's just like one of the best battles. Like, how could he not be my favorite? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, I do. I think Finrod was always would be like my favorite of the bunch. I just think. His sacrifice is so, uh, um, so interesting, as well as just, uh, what is it? He, he's sort of his downfall. He's not as, um, he's not as caught up in what he's created being destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the I think a lot of the a lot of the Noldor are just go above and beyond to try and stop the destruction of what they've created but um he's more okay with the fact that you know this is happening you know he's more submissive Mm to um to um, providence i guess he seems more aware of his role Mm -hmm. and um of what he must do whereas i think a lot of the elves hold on to their own creation the work of their hands to the point where they become unwilling to accept it like like um, Turgon in Gondolin when um, I forget which character comes and he's, he's bearing the words of Is it Tor? Uh, he comes. Um, I forget. He, it's one of the characters who um, almost speaks to him and gives him like a prophecy to bring to Turgon. Is that the Tor? end? Of, Tor? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. The, that sounds right. Torin's cousin. Yeah. So he comes and he's like, you know, listen, I have the message of one of the Valar that you need to get out of here. And, and Turgon's like, no, sorry, I, I love it here too much. And, and I am not willing to leave. So you see that happen kind of a lot with a lot of the elves. Yeah, Gondolin does seem like the almost the perfect city 
too. So it, it it's very understandable why you wouldn't want to leave, you know, like all this, like, yeah. it's like, it's sort of the, um, the sort of, uh, greatest of heraldry sort of, it's the greatest of the chivalry that exists probably on middle earth ever because of all these different, you know, like it's, it's flourishing and, you know, with culture and stuff like that. Like it's just, I mean, it's based on what's the city in, um, in, uh, in Valinor, the, um, uh, Tyrion. Yeah. Tyrion. And then I didn't, it's so interesting that like that, the same design goes into Minas Tirith eventually. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the, that type of city that, uh, sort of never goes away. Uh, yeah. And, and you could see him thinking to himself, well, I've stood and remained in secret for this long. So why couldn't it last longer? And yeah. so he's kind of just in his pride and his, you can see it's just his love of what he's made that he's unwilling to heed the warnings. Yeah. The elves really do. It's a sort of a battle of pride, battling against pride. That's mm-hmm. sort of the summation of what the elves have to deal with because I mean, the men have this, but they are also, they see the elves. So they, at least during the Silmarillion, they don't have as much pride because they they're literally looking at sort of these great figures, these um, you know, these powerful elves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the the men have such a short lifespan too that they're unable to cause as much destruction as the elves. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably a good thing. Which uh, you know, it you could. Yeah, I guess in the age of men, though, it does it does seem like they can cause a lot of uh, <laughs> with without elves around to um, to destroy a bunch of stuff to to um, make make their own decisions like that. Men sort of it, it sort of falls onto them to make uh, all the craziness happen. Yeah, they have no problem. Uh, they have no uh, problem causing problems of their own. Mm hmm. It just makes me think of um, the steward, uh, Denethor. You know, he sort mm-hmm. of does, he he sort of creates almost the almost the fall of a whole kingdom, and he's just mm-hmm. li- living through one. You know, for you know the basic years of a human, which yeah. is kind of amazing. But you know, uh, elves create such a massive destruction uh, over the course of you know um, ages. Yeah, and it's no wonder um, that Numenor ended so disastrously, too, because if you think about it, it's almost like they took men who are so prone to weakness and then gave them such a long time to mess around and cause more and more problems. And, and to, I don't know, it's almost like they've, they've got too much time to sit around and worry or, or think about death or yeah. think about how oh, the elves get to live for so much longer. But but the elves, I don't think, are as prone to the same uh, problems as men. Yeah. Well, uh, we could probably talk about this forever, but uh, I think we should wrap it up. Uh, is there anything else you want to say um, before we go? No, I mean, I could talk about Silmarillion and elves forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where can people find you? So... Yeah, they can find me at teawithtolkien.com and that has links to our book club. Um, we do a free book club a couple times a year 
and we have a discord server that you can find on, on our website. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at tea with Tolkien. Awesome. Well, thank you, Caitlin, for coming on. And uh, um, it's just an honor having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe. And have a wonderful day. Bye.